Tad, are you, you've yet to talk about anything about the rise of the lizards. The lizards. Hello, and welcome to the 93rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is the 31st of January, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today, we have part one of our interview with Dr. Tad Tietze. Tad is currently writing a book on anti-politics for Verso Books. We try to get a handle on what exactly is meant by anti-politics and how we can use this to understand our current seesaw political scene. You can find Tad's writing on his blog, leftflank.org, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Tad. If you'd like to help out with the show, you can sign up as a patron over on Patreon. You can join for $5 a month, which works out at about $1 an episode. And when I reach 50 patrons, I'm going to do an extra Patreon-only podcast every month, and fortnightly if I reach 100. I am planning on releasing those episodes to the general public after an extended period, so everything will be available for free in the end. So, if you'd like some of that, you too can become a part of the gang gang by clicking on that there Patreon button. All Patreons get the episodes. A few days early, they get to vote on and take part in the reading groups too. And those who have cash to burn and donate at the higher tiers get extra benefits like a personally handcraft commie badge, choice of a topic or guest on the show, and even a one-on-one call with yours truly. If you'd like to comment on this show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can join me on Facebook or Twitter. Okay, to the interview. Yeah, it's perverso. It's got a long and complicated history because my ex-partner and I were going to write it together, but um, we broke up, so... That was like over a year ago now. And we had a discussion in the end about what to do about it. And she suggested that, I mean, she's just got a book come out on one of those Brill Marxist series, which I can talk about later anyway. But she's, she wasn't in a position to write this book. And I was in a position to take time off work to write it because I don't, I don't think I could have written it around my work as a psychiatrist. It's just too busy and draining. So, so having some time off, but uh, I've never written a whole book by myself not, you know, a former PhD student. So it's challenging. I think I'm getting better at it as I go. So this latest, I'm writing the Trump chapter currently and I feel like it's going really, really well. So (laughs) I'm probably not going as quickly as I'd like to, but that's partly because I've been waylaid and distracted by things moving around between countries and so on unexpectedly. So how many pages then? How, How big is it going to be? So Versa have a standard contract that doesn't let you go over 80,000 words. So that's what it's going to be, under 80,000 words, which is fine with me because then it kind of forces me to be more punchy rather than, you know, go off on big, long theoretical tangents. Versa put out a lot of books that are, you know, no more than 200, 250 pages. And I think they've got this, like, this standard formula they've got going where they don't pay you a huge amount in advance, like it's a pretty small advance, but then they're kind of keen to publish and see which books take off. As far as I can tell, that's their business model, like for new authors. It's not, an, it's not an advance you can live off or write a book off, but it's like a commitment from them, I guess, which is nice. And obviously they're, they're a publisher with really big distribution network, mainstream bookstores. So if your book ends up you know, catching people's attention and selling a bit, then, I mean, obviously then royalties can come out of sales. But I'm, really I'm doing this as a labour of love. My main job is as, as a psychiatrist. But I'm hoping to get some of these ideas out there because I think, particularly because I think there's a whole bunch of what Marx wrote. The Marxists haven't really liked it because it's so anti-politics. <laughs> and trying to revive that as, as a way of understanding what's happening now is, I think, quite interesting and useful and certainly brought Marxism back for me Whereas before that, I think I was finding um, that there was a, you know, yet another crisis in Marxism about what was going on. Discovering early Marx and sort of coming to terms with that was kind of helpful in working through that. Can you tell us what the book's called and what it's about? Yeah, sure. The book is uh, called The Great Derangement, 
it's for Verso Publishing. Um, and the book is really about two things that I think are really important and intertwined. One is the rise of anti-political sentiment and feeling amongst the publics of most sort of advanced capitalist countries. And the second thing is increasing level of crisis, volatility and breakdown of the established political order that dominated the 20th century uh, in those countries and particularly the post-World War II period. So th those two things, are uh, it's called the great derangement partly because of, people talk about Trump derangement syndrome, that people are kind of losing their minds over politics currently in the United States. And it's called the great derangement because I think politics itself has become deranged. It's not just that people are more against it. The public is more against politics and more hostile to politics, but politics itself seems to be more deranged, more crisis prone and so on. Can you describe what you mean by this term anti-politics for those that haven't come across yeah. it before? Yeah. So I, I think um, I think it means it, it means a variety of things and it's certainly used in popular and academic literature in a variety of ways. But uh, the way that I've defined it and in the work that I've done in the past with uh, my former collaborator, uh, Elizabeth Humphreys, we kind of talk about three quite distinct forms of anti-politics that are also kind of related to each other. Um, the first kind of anti-politics is the most obvious kind, which is a rise in popular dissatisfaction with detachment from and hostility towards politics in all its forms, not just official governmental politics and parliamentary politics, but a, a kind of a, a distancing of, of the public and, um, uh, and people in society from all kinds of political activity, uh, cynicism towards it and so on. And that can express itself in all kinds of ways in terms of people voting differently to how they used to, less less sort of tied on to the old parties that they used to be. Uh, we have a, a phrase in Australia that you're rusted on to the old parties. Um, and that kind of rusting on process has, uh, that rusting on phenomenon has fallen apart. So there's the first bit of the anti-politics, as, as I was describing there, is the sort of reaction within the public, within civil society against politics. The, the second type of anti-politics is really very much how the people who are involved in politics react to react to this so a kind of an anti-politics from above uh, and uh, at one level there's a series of politicians who've thought well if the public doesn't like us we're getting away from the public and really we don't like the public we don't like the people in society so you can see the rise of technocratic solutions and so on for the political class and then there's the other formula, which is the um, anti-political strategy, which is of particular interest, where politicians themselves try to leverage this detachment between society and, and the political class to say, well, we're against politics as well. We're offering something beyond or outside politics or different to politics or that pushes aside the old politics in favour of a new kind of a, a new kind of way of doing things that's not really about politics. I suppose the most spectacular example of that, in terms of a, a politician leveraging that that kind of sentiment, is Donald Trump, who has um, you know he's a, a right wing example of that. There are left wing examples. The Podemos party in in Spain certainly, at least at the beginning, was extremely hostile to what they called uh, la casta, the political caste which they saw as a political and financial elite that had betrayed the people and really tried to leverage that kind of hatred of that, that elite um, by specifically saying, well, we, we're going to push that caste aside, we're against that caste and so on. And the third type of anti-politics, again distinct, is what I guess in old school Marxists would call communism or the real movement that abolishes the present state of things or a revolution against the state. So the idea that society or usually the case is that it's the proletariat or the working class, will rise up and overthrow the state and therefore get rid of a separate political sphere in society that that will be gotten rid of. So um, the idea that Marx talked about in relation to the Paris Commune, where the distinction between the state and civil society is gotten rid of, not because the state takes everything over, but because civil society creates its own institutions of self-rule. And therefore, there's no need for a separate politics. So it's not that politics goes away, it's reabsorbed into society rather than being a separate thing or, or all of its own. So we kind of had this theoretical proposition that there were these three types of anti-politics and that we were seeing an era where the rise of anti-political sentiment was almost impossible to miss, even though people want to talk around it and don't like to face up to it. 
that a series of politicians and political movements were trying to leverage that that sentiment. And then I guess the third type, this kind of real movement that might sweep away politics and you know create a, a self-governing society, um, we only see the tiniest sort of beginnings of that in, in the current situation. And probably for us, the, the biggest example was the Quince M or the Indignados movement in, in Spain from 2011 till about 2013, where there was a mass movement, popular movement that probably involved six to eight million Spanish people at its height, where there was a specifically anti-political sort of attitude and posture of that movement. So people were asserting their own direct social interests against the political caste, not just having politicians do it for them, but were actually acting themselves in their own direct interests. So that's that's kind of how how we've uh, how we formulated it and how I've been thinking about it. What led you to this position, this on un- this understanding of current political situation? Um, I, I think it was really the failure of the old perspectives that I'd gotten. I come from a post-Trotskyist tradition, though the one that was started by Tony Cliff, where it saw you know the Eastern Bloc as state capitalism was a kind of a very anti-statist form of Marxism. But its perspectives, particularly uh, when I was uh, an active Marxist in the 1990s and early 2000s, was that there was an increasing polarisation in society between right and left, and that this was opening up the possibility of mass struggles and mass social movements from below because of this political polarisation. There was the possibility of a revival of the left and, and so on. And I guess over time, it became harder and harder to, for me to sustain that idea. Um, I could see that there was increasing anti-political sentiment in society. That doesn't quite fit with this idea that Marxists usually have, that there's an anti-capitalist sentiment. Um, it was a bit different to that. It was really about the problem with politics. It wasn't so, so clearly defined as anti-capitalism. And this idea that society was polarising became less and less sustainable. You could kind of believe it in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008, perhaps, and for the few years after that, where there was some terrible economic crisis, you could believe it in a country like Greece or Spain, where people really faced some tremendous social and economic setbacks, at least for a period of time. But actually, in countries like Australia, politics was becoming more and more chaos-ridden, anti-political sentiment was rising, and yet we had never had a recession. So we'd had a reset. Our last recession ended, I think, in 1991, 92, where we survived the economic crisis pretty well, where people's living standards continued to increase, and yet politics itself and people's attitude to politics showed all the same problems, perhaps not on the same scale as they did in countries like Greece or Spain. And that kind of made me start to think, well, that old perspective of polarisation isn't really happening. Uh, and in fact, then when I started to look at people's actual the, the attitudes of people in society, their political positioning, their ideological positioning, there was actually not much evidence that there was a radicalization or a polarization to the extremes going on in any major, major advanced industrial country. Even though the narrative increasingly was not just amongst the Nazis, the Marxists, sorry, but amongst um, mainstream political commentary that there was this polarization of society going on, this kind of uh, flight to the extremes, but it actually wasn't really sustainable once you looked at society, if you looked at the political class, well, in countries like the United States, it's clear there is an extreme polarisation compared with 50 years ago of politicians. But that p- polarisation does not occur in society. There's still a pretty bell-shaped curve of public opinion on a whole range of social issues. If anything, there's been a slight sort of movement towards social liberalism in the United States but uh, around a, a bunch of issues, but no, no sense of a polarisation to the extremes. But it's not how you hear it talked about. So the perspective failed and uh, anti-politics seemed to fit better. And uh, I guess I was influenced particularly by um, a blog in Australia called The Piping Shrike, uh, which is a blog that has looked at Australian politics from this anti-political perspective. And it made a lot more sense and fit with what was going on and had way more predictive power than the old kind of Marxist perspective. And so that was like, in the end, it was quite shocking to me that uh, you could actually make predictions about what was going to happen next. Whereas in the past, I think we Marxists made these predictions, they didn't come true, but we'd make them again. You know, there's a the joke about that Marxists have predicted 25 of the last one economic crises. So you re- return to reading some of the young Marx. So I guess the, f- the first thing I should say is that my experience as a Marxist is that there was a narrative about those early writings 
that they were the writings of Marx before he became a full communist, before he became fully materialist, so it was allegedly suffused with German idealism, that it were that these writing, early writings were mainly philosophical and humanist in nature. There was nothing wrong with that, but that's and so I guess I'd read parts of them in the past looking at them in that frame. But then I once I read um, Marx's critique of Hegel's uh, doctrine of the state, which I mean it's it's not like a hidden text. It's in the Penguin edition of Marx's early writings. This is a you know a book that's been read very wi- widely. I actually discovered in there that Marx had actually done a critique of Hegel on the basis of a, a very materialist critique of politics and the state. He's not just critiquing Hegel's idealism, but he's critiquing the material basis of Hegel's idealism about the state, which is the modern state itself. So he's analysing not just Hegel's ideas and criticising them for their um, idealism and the way they uh, are, are inverted, um, you know, putting the idea before, you know, bef- putting the subjectivity before the objective reality. But actually, this inversion reflects what the state of modern society as it is, that society itself presents itself to us as as inverted, which is similar to Marx's critique, I guess, of commodity fetishism uh, in, his, in his more mature later work. And reading that, that was like a real shock because here is actually a pretty systematic account of the modern state, at least as it was then or as at least Hegel uh, was trying to conceptualise what a modern state would be like, taking on a lot of the key issues like what's the nature of the executive, what's the nature of the legislative assembly, what's the relationship between the state and society, what is, how do people in politics think about society and so on. Thinking about all that whole mode of thought was criticised alongside a, a critique of the actual state of the, of the actual pra- material practice of politics and how politics was actually organised in reality. That was like pretty shocking to me and it sort of goes through a whole series of those early writings. Marx sort of uh, deepens that critique and I guess comes to the conclusion at the end of that process and he talks about it in a, in a, in a famous later text which is I think the preface to the contribution of the critique of political economy which was written in the 1850s. He says that he comes to the conclusion out of that whole process of critiquing politics and law and and the state that actually the very basis of them is bourgeois civil society. And so he needs to move on to doing an anatomy of bourgeois civil society, which, of course, is his critique of political economy. So rather than this being this kind of separate early work that doesn't quite fit with what he says later on, you can see it as part of his intellectual development but also he's kind of getting deeper and deeper into, well, what, what is it that causes us to think politically and, you know, for us to perceive the world in these political terms? Uh, and what is the social basis for that? People, a lot of times, they have this idea that the politics is separate from society. Does this play into yes. your idea of anti-politics? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the thing is that civil society and politics are separate in modern society, which is capitalist society that there, there is an actual separation and even an antagonism between the civil, the social sphere and the political sphere, between civil society and the state. And, and so I guess one of the key things that I came to out of this that became apparent to me and in discussions with others is that, in fact, when people perceive politics as separate, as antagonistic to their own interests, there's a material basis for this. It actually is. And Marx's argument you know, starting from Hegel is is that we live, like Hobbes said, in a modern society is a society where it's a war of all against all. We live in a society of competing individual egoistic interests. That's bourgeois society. We're all kind of competing with each other as individuals. And therefore, if you have a state that is allegedly the collective interest, it can't really be the collective interest because everyone's competing. So everyone's got competing interests. You can't just create a collective interest out of out of those competing individual interests. So the state then actually has an interest of its own in contradistinction with the society on which it's based. So you've got this kind of weird relationship between politics and society that politics relies on a bourgeois civil society to exist as a separate sphere. The state requires a bourgeois civil society to exist uh, as a a state that stands over society. But at the same time, it's then in antagonism with the society that it came out of. So this is the fundamental contradiction which which Marx sort of analyses. And so therefore, actually, the key question is not why are people so anti-political? The key question is why for a long time did people think that politics could represent their interests? And in the 20th century, 
in the era of sort of mass representative politics, we have this feeling for, amongst millions of people that actually politics was representative in some way. And so now people talk about, well, anti-politics is a crisis of representation. But actually, the real question is, why do people think they were being representative? Fundamentally, the structure of society is that the state is in a, a antagonism with, with civil society. So it kind of flips the question on its head when you think about it that way. You kind of have to explain, well, why was there this long period, not like when Marx was around, not like our current period, but where people honestly felt like these mass parties, these large parties actually represented their interests. Not everyone, but much more than that happens now. How, what about how Marx was influenced by the Chartists in England? Well, I, I, th I think he's influenced by a series of movements that show him not just in theoretical and philosophical terms, but in concrete terms, like material terms, that there, that there can be a force in society that could actually potentially overturn the situation. And so I think he looks at Chartism as a social organisation of the working class. He looks at, you know, the Silesian Weavers, one of the first working class movements he looks at, uh, and he writes about in, a, in an excellent short piece called uh, Critical Marginal Notes on the King of Prussia and Social Reform, which can be found in that Penguin book. And he looks at these early working class movements and sees in them the possibility of movements that, that can challenge the existing political order, but also in the end overturn the society that creates a separate politics. And he has a good discussion of that in that King of the Silesian Weavers article about how the, you can have a political revolution, but actually a political revolution doesn't resolve the underlying social contradictions that lead to politics being separate to people's social being. Um, so I think he was always really positive about social movements, even ones that sought representation, as long as they were real social movements, not just people forming a political party with no real social base. And I think that's consistent throughout, really, throughout his life. Like, I don't think there's a phase where he lets go of the social element of politics. He's always interested in how the working class can be political, not just to be involved in politics and be part of that whole game, but how it can assert its direct social interests. And then the commune helps him rediscover, you know, or discover uh, a potential social organisation, form of social organisation that can actually play that kind of role where people are directly self-governing society in a collective way. I, I think all those movements influence him. I don't think he lets go of the idea that you need, that political intervention has to have a social base. I mean, I know he criticises the anarchists for being anti-politics in a different way of being abstentionist from politics, but that's fair enough. He never says, don't get involved in politics. He says, but what is it you're trying to do? You're trying to assert social interests. And I don't think he ever lets go of the idea that politics and the state are in the end need to be gotten rid of. So he would look at, say, something like the 1945 Labour government as having a social base, but it, in, in essence, it wasn't a social revolution. It was kind of maybe you could be pejorative and call it a political revolution and that its own... In, in the fact that it didn't have a social revolution at its, as well as a kind of a political type of revolution, mm. that it was doomed for kind of disintegration. My, my term political revolution obviously is a bit strong, but getting towards that idea of social democracy as a social mm. base was destined for yeah. kind of political failure in the end. So I think, I think when you look at like, uh, you're talking about the Attlee government, the post-war Attlee government, I presume like with the introduction of the NHS and so on, I think that's, that's probably more a reflection of once the Labour Party has become relatively well integrated into the state, it does have a social base, but it's probably not the same kind of restive social base that, that you would have seen in, you know, the period between 1910 and, you know, the, the Great Depression, where Labour was less well integrated into the state and it was a much more fractious relationship. So I think in that sense, the social bases become kind of ossified during the 20th century, that the political parties were based on class power in a very indirect way, like the Labour Party in Australia and in Britain is laborist. It's not even social democratic. It's a party based on the trade union bureaucracy. That bureaucracy has a social base in terms of large sections of the organised working class. That social base can be helpful for the Labour Party and the trade union bureaucracy to play the political game and assert their own interests, but the interests of the working class are still a long way back from that. So I, I think there's 
I mean, I think there's very little revolutionary about what happens at the end of the Second World War. Um, I think more you see social democracy uh, and laborist politics being having a social base that's more active or that's putting more pressure on it, probably in that 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 period, the interwar period or the, the period before the First World War. In Australia, we have like a really distorted, horrible example where really the, the Labor parties and the trade unions are integrated at the time the Australian state forms from all the colonies at the beginning of last century, where basically they all accept the idea that wage claims should be arbitrated through state courts, that white Australia is the operative immigration policy so that we need to keep non-whites out of the country, and that protectionism is necessary to develop Australian industry. So like in Australia, there is a social base for labourism. It is an organised working class, but it's a tremendously conservative social base and at its highest echelons gets rapidly integrated into the state. And so you see Labour governments really not challenging the order in Australia very much at all, even from the early part of the 20th century. So I think each country has a different different story. There is an important social force there, which is the organised working class. And if you look at political science work around Western Europe, historical political science work, pretty much everyone's agreed that in the period from the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century, politics is dramatically reorganised into politics on the basis that there is an organised working class in society and there is some kind of political expression of that through social democracy or labourism or other parties like that. And politics has to re- all of politics has to reorganise itself to take account of the, of the power of the organised working class, even if at the level of the political system it's, it's much more distorted than what you get in terms of shop floor organisation in a factory or whatever. Obviously, political revolution was a tad too strong. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, before we before we started, we were chatting, and you said you're just in the middle of writing your new book, a chapter on Donald Trump. Let's oh, yes. talk about Trump as a anti political character. How do you see him? Do you do you think this is 1928 Hitler? I absolutely don't see him as well. I mean, Hitler in 1928 had a much lower share of the vote than Donald Trump. I think that the question about social bases is really important. Apart from the fact that politically, Trump is so non-ideological compared with Hitler, who really had a very worked out, you know, complex blood and soil ideology that grew out of the real crisis in German society with defeat in the First World War, the, the fact that defeat happened because of mutiny and revolution, the fact that there was therefore this betrayal of the, of the nation state, the fact that mass democracy came to Germany in the, in the wake of that, that a whole series of reactionary and right-wing people, some based in rural areas, some based in the military, some based in you know, police forces, some based in the cities. This was like mass movements of people who were involved in regular discussion and activity on the right in Germany. And in a sense, what uh, Hitler does is over a period of time, he reorganises that around a fascist model and uses that as a kind of battering ram to to be able to get admitted into running the state. So it's really quite a different picture to now, because that was a period where mass politics was a real thing. The Social Democratic and Communist parties in Germany had mass membership, you know, based in industrial workplaces where workers were active and militant and well-organised. So when Trotsky writes about all that stuff in his, I think Trotsky's writing on on the rise of fascism in Germany is, is really, really important to understanding the difference between then and now. He's talking about mass social forces and their political expressions and the clashes that they're having. Uh, and that's why Trotsky keeps talking about the possibility for if the bases of the social democratic and communist parties could unite uh, you know, in working class action, not just political action, but working class organisation against the fascists, the fascists could be wiped out pretty quickly. But instead what you have is these political divisions lead to the, to the mass working class actually being disorganised and set against itself and divided. Today you have Donald Trump after a long period with the decline of social bases of all kinds of political parties, including the Republicans and the Democrats in the United States, where the Republican leadership had such a weak hold over their own social base, so little influence over their own social base, that a guy who had, you know, for a long time been a registered Democrat, seen as a pretty centrist liberal from New York, who was seen as a brash outsider to politics, could come and, and basically organise a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. This is, uh, this is actually a sign of both how weak the Republican Party is, but also that Trump didn't need to have much of a social base to do this. People like to talk about his rallies, but having a bunch of political rallies is like really nothing compared with organising, you know, fascist street thugs to smash up 
uh, you know, trade unions and Jewish communities and so on. It's, it's nothing compared with what went on in, in the interwar period. Now, what we have now is actually Trump is able to leverage the detachment from politics, the lack of involvement in politics, and, and beat an entire historic party of, of American capitalist society with actually very few social forces on the ground. And since then, he's really run things out of the state apart from these rallies, which, I mean, these rallies are hardly threatening. And he's done it without all these predictions that there were going to be like thugs all over America, mass, you know, fascism was going to arise. I mean, Charlottesville, um, what did they manage? 500 people at the peak in a national fascist mobilisation. And probably most of them weren't fascists during that main protest. The, the main fascist protest was probably a, a lot smaller than that. So we're talking about tiny social forces for political parties right now. Even the major parties really completely weakened and hollowed out compared with 30, 40, 50 years ago. So I think it's, we're looking at it. You look at the, the evangelical right, the Christian right in the United States. You know, during the Reagan era, they were a powerful and significant force that could organise millions of voters you know, and, and active supporters of the Republican Party for Reagan. Now they're willing to accept someone who's a philanderer and you know, talks about grabbing women by their pussies and his, you know, his um, talk about God is one wonders how serious he is about his Christianity. And yet they accept him because he's, he gives them, you know, drops them a few, a few things like some conservative Supreme Court judges. So the, the difference is, is so stark. Before you even get down to Trump's own ideology, which I think uh, has been completely misunderstood by political forces on the right and the left. Compare then the rise of Trump, say, with someone like Jeremy Corbyn. Do you see structural differences between those two characters? Yeah, I think both are products of a period where the old systems of political parties and their internal structures and their social bases has broken down. Both of them are products of that, that same kind of process. But I think Corbyn represents a different kind of sort of response to that, whereas Trump comes from the outside of politics, essentially, and does a hostile takeover of a party. And, you know, in some ways, the Republican Party has knelt down before him in a very short period of time. With Corbyn, he gets, and he appeals specifically to anti-political sentiments, like people watch Trump's speeches all the way through. His attacks on the political class were relentless uh, and consistent, um, even though that's not the main thing that was reported. Usually what was re reported was his outrageous you know, statements around borders or Muslims or terrorism or whatever. But then you look at Corbyn, it's a different kind of phenomenon. It's, um, and there's a, there's a very good book, I think, called The Candidate that came out um, a year or two ago, written by a young British left-wing academic, whose name I've just um, forgotten. And in it, he shows how um, Corbynism is the product of actually the internal party activists and the close supporters of the Labour Party became disheartened, not just with the failure of Blairism in the third way, which was dead by then, but also the kind of mealy-mouthed leftism that Ed Miliband provided. And in a sense, they kind of revolted against these kinds of, you know, new Blairites or new mealy-mouthed Ed Milibands that were up on offer. And here was someone who was at least had conviction and, you know, um, had some belief. But at the same time, it's interesting, one of the key support bases for Corbyn once he was nominated, because of course he had almost no support within the parliamentary party, was actually trade union officials who were sick of restraining themselves after you know, the hostility of the Blair years and then um, restraining them, their own demands under Miliband and still getting hostile blowback, but getting more involved with Labour Party internal politics, they decided that, well, perhaps he could be a candidate who could give them a chance to throw around their weight much more. And so you get people like Len McCluskey from, I think, Unite Union, are key people in pushing the Corbyn campaign. And that shows you the weakness of the Labour Party structures that weakened and hollowed out trade unions with not much of a base. Their bureaucrats can still play a political role inside the party. But also, clearly, Corbyn, you know, enthused a whole bunch of people and also pulled in a whole bunch of people on the wider left, some of whom would have previously sworn they would never join a horrible sellout reformist party like the Labour Party, but they were pulled into that, into that Corbynist project. So I think it's, it's quite different. It's almost like an ultra-political project that the, um, you know, the party activists and, and cadres, or at least the left sections of them, had a revolt against the MPs and the old structures of the party. So it's a, a, a really different kind of way that political breakdown can express itself. It's different in each country. So uh, in that sense, I don't think, I think Corbyn says a lot of stuff that sounds a bit beyond old politics, but he's actually very political in the way he frames things. It's, 
it's more a Bernie Sanders pitch than a Donald Trump pitch. Like, I'm just looking at the UK Labour Party here. Now, their membership as of 2018 is over half a million, 540,000. Yes, yes. So that would lead one to believe that it, there is a social base behind the rise of Corbyn. There's probably a lot more UK Labour Party membership than there is, you know, Republican Party members. Yeah, it's hard to measure American Party membership because of the way they register to vote and so on. So it's kind of meaningless. I think the thing is that there there needs to be a distinction between the membership of political parties and the social base of political parties. Half a million sounds like a like a fair bit, though Blair got almost there at the peak of his popularity. But actually, the old social base of the Labour Party in Britain was a, a much larger trade union movement. And that movement was not only organised for political activity in relation to parliament, it was actually organised uh, on the basis of workplace organisation where workers themselves, uh, in their millions, were exerting some kind of social pressure on their employers. So there's a, the question of social base is not just how many members you have or how many votes you got. It's really much more about, is there an organised force in society that has some kind of weight in society that stands in some way behind those political forces? There has been no revival of the trade unions in Britain. People talk about, uh, you know, Corbyn was going to build the social movements. It hasn't happened. Um, I'm not blaming him for it. I don't think it's possible for politicians or politicos to build social movements out of nothing. I think social movements happen when society moves, like when people, when the contradictions in society lead large numbers of people to move. So I'm, I'm not down on Corbyn for that, but really it is what it is, is, is a flurry of political activity in a period of breakdown of old political structures. Similar thing happened in, in Scotland around the referendum. I mean, there was a big surge in Scottish National Party membership and so on. These things do not represent a sustained rebuilding of a social base like the trade unions used to represent or like the mass organisations of, you know, German social democracy or German Christian democracy used to represent, that the social weight is not there anymore. And that's, that's important because so, when we look back at Trotsky and fascism, he talks about millions of organised workers. He's not talking about millions of passive members of the communist and socialist, social democratic parties. Absolutely. There's a total difference. What do you think about th this statement then? The state of our politics now is probably similar to something like in the 1880s before the rise of really organised left parties. I, I think there's something to that. I think the very brittle relationship between civil society and the political sphere is similar to what it was like in that early period. I think the difference is that there's been this intervening history so we have all these parties that once did have social bases, and that creates a complication. Because so now you've got these uh, an insight that I think uh, the piping strike made to me, which I, th I thought was um, I had a long think about it, and I think there's there's something to to the piping strike's argument that that actually you have um, you have these old parties that still have a memory of having a social base, and you see it in Britain where the MPs say, "Hang on, I was elected by constituents." you know, in a, in a constituency and you political activists who have no social base are telling me what to do. What the hell are you talking about? So there's this kind of memory amongst parties of when they once did have more influence in society and more authority in society. And then you've got a bunch of new parties that spring up that basically don't even bother with having a social base. Like there are parties springing up everywhere. This era of anti-politics is also the era of parties springing up everywhere and sometimes getting big votes on the basis of very little social base or organisation at all. Certainly it's true in Australia, we've got a series of parties. There's, there's small parties, that they're going to get several percent of the vote, but they have done so on the basis of having none of the classic social base that I'm talking about the major parties having had in the past. So there's a difference that we're, we're living in an era where people sense the passing of the past era at the same time as there's no possibility of going back to it. Whereas I think back then, in the, let's say in the mid-1800s, there was no past era of mass parties in the same way to look back to. So I think it does create a different scenario for us. Do you think it has similarities? I, th I think that particularly the antagonistic relationship between the people in civil society and the people who are supposed to be their political represent representatives, the sense that we are not actually being represented here, and the sense from the representatives that actually society itself is a burden and why can't they just get on with being, being able to do politics? Like, why do they have to... Why do we have to put up with these people in civil society, really? Which, is, like now, gets expressed. Back then, it was expressed through a lack of democracy. 
now gets expressed through all kinds of weird schemes by which democracy can be diminished in the name of the in the name of liberal democracy. So there's ideas that perhaps only people with a certain level of political knowledge should be allowed to vote. Perhaps actually people with lower education, I mean, there's all this stuff now with, with the midterms. Look at those low educated people who voted for Trump or the Republican Party. That's a problem. Then there's ideas that perhaps votes should be weighted, you know, depending on various sort of social and demographic characteristics. Perhaps the idea we should get rid of elections altogether and do, do decision making by sortition. So you just like basically draw straws and get groups of randomly selected citizens to make decisions about things. You know, or, uh, or the idea that increasingly, and this was a, certainly a big thing in the 90s with the third way and so on, the idea that if we just put everything in the, in the hands of experts and technocrats, then everything's going to be all right. I guess the European Union project is like the ultimate expression of that. So there's all these ideas now that kind of reflect that antagonistic relationship, whereas back then it was more the political class wanting to keep out, you know, the, the hordes from ever being able to vote the fear that they would get to vote and this would totally upturn politics. It's interesting. So I think there are a lot of similarities. It's interesting you should talk about sortition there because there are, are communists who make the case that Marx's conception of democracy was, was a classical understanding of classical democracy that were based on drawing of lot and not on representation. Hmm. I've not heard that argument about Marx before. Certainly when he critiques Hegel, he actually suggests that perhaps universal suffrage and bringing everyone, absolutely everyone, into the political process could undermine that separation of politics and civil society. Later on, he seems pretty clearly for the widest possible participation in politics and in democracy by people. Like whether that's his conception of past forms, I'm not really sure. He talks about the democracy of ancient Greece and Rome, of ancient society, very much in terms of, of how at least all the free, free male citizens could be involved in it and, and that this was a positive part of it, that everyone was making decisions. But, of course, the negative part was that, that you know, the free citizens and their you know, perfect democracy were based on a society of slavery. Yeah, so I've not heard that he was into sortition. Um, I think he was pretty consistently for the widest possible democratic involvement. Yeah, I don't know if he was explicitly into sortition, but the idea of the, the the ancient idea of democracy was that it was, you know, democracy of everybody, that it wasn't, say, the idea of representative democracy was thought of as an oligarchy. Oh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. So, so in a sense, sortition, whilst it's, not, whilst it's not representative in the classical sense, it is still a form of separation of politics from society because it's not all of society that's involved but because people draw lots, only a random or somehow selected minority of that society then become the political class for this week or whatever. Whereas I think, I think what he saw in ancient society, apart from the fact it was built on slavery, but at least for the free citizens, was this complete lack of a boundary between political and social life. That everyone, it was, of course it was only men, they all participated in political life. All the free citizens participated in political life. So when it comes to talking about the commune later on, um, it's pretty clear that he means that every single person has to be part of the government because it's fully self-governing. It's not like you just elect people or draw people from society all the time. Then there might be elective principles within it, representative principles within it, but the actual form of social organisation and political organisation are fused entirely. So there is no separate political organisation to social organisation. Unlike now under capitalism, Social organisation is based on the abstraction of value, but the political organisation is quite separate from the civil society that's, that's based on that. It's that separation between the political sphere and the social sphere that I think that he was getting, at, at getting rid of. So, Tad, what has been the reception of your, of your thesis? What have been the critiques that you've had to feel most regularly? Look, the first one is just the blow-off, well, you're just an autonomist, aren't you? which doesn't really make much sense. I mean, um, I think autonomism, uh, even the Marxist variety, is really a political project that seeks to get around that or says that it will get around the state rather than dealing with the question of the state. That's been sort of a common blow-off. Other people have... I think there's been a lot of hostility because the, the theory of anti-politics and what Marx wrote, I think, really kind of points the finger pretty sharply against Marxists who organise now with no social base. And Marxists can't help but organise with no social base because there is no mass self-organised 
active, self-active working class to relate to. As a result, this theory basically says, well, the organisation that you're doing claiming to move society forward is nothing of the sort. So there's been a lot of hostility that I think essentially, I think people were initially attracted sometimes to the idea that Marxists could be type two of anti-politics. They could leverage anti-political sentiment for their own purposes. But the theory really goes to that you can't do that uh, and end up at communism. That's just being a politico leveraging anti-political sentiment for your own political project. So so there's been a lot of hostility about, well, you reject the idea of a party. There's nothing in this theoretical conception that rejects parties or any of those things. It just says the concrete analysis of the concrete situation today is there is no social basis for for building uh, proletarian parties. Uh, And that the most useful thing to do is to try to figure out what is going on and why are things like this rather than um, putting our heads in the sand. So the question, I think the most important question really that always comes up is people say, well, you know, there's this polarisation in society and so on, but they can never really point to the revival of social movements or working class organisation on a mass scale. So they're always substituting some kind of political solution for the ultimate social power that, that is needed to transform society. The communist revolution is a, is a revolution by, by social forces. It's not a revolution by political forces. And so I, I, I guess in a sense there's a lot of hostility to, to the theory on, on misunderstandings or willful misunderstandings because the, I guess the, the really objectionable part of theory is it says to pretty much everyone building a working class revolutionary party today, you know, that's not really what you're doing. Other criticisms have been, well, Marx changed his mind later. I mean, I'm not going to have much space in the book to talk about that, but I think there's very good evidence that, that Marx continues to, to see this separation between politics and society right through the end of his days, that the critique of the Gotha program, that his you know, analysis of the commune are completely in line with the earlier work, just sort of enriched and further developed. Those have been sort of the main criticisms. I guess the, I guess the final criticism is probably it's the most important is that actually anti-politics is letting fascism and authoritarian right-wing populism in and celebrating the right, and it's actually an entirely reactionary theory because it looks at someone like Trump and finds something useful to say about him rather than starting from a a position of outright condemnation and organising the struggle against him. For for me and uh, for Elizabeth and myself, and I think anti-politics is neither left nor right. It just is comes out of the material nature of our society and we should be paying attention to it and trying to understand it. And that means that some of the commentary doesn't come across as very partisan at all. It's certainly not partisan for the left because we see the left is caught up in the same crisis as the right in this situation. Like It seems to me that it's a description of current state. I've had some fairly prominent Marxists on the show and they think that Trump is a fascist in the old sense of the... Yes. And it seems to me that that's just a misdiagnosis. You know, it's a bad political analysis. If anything, he's closer to a kind of a right-wing populist like Orban in Hungary or take oh, her yes. pick, yeah. probably probably slightly slightly to the right of Berlusconi. Well, hard, hard to tell. Oh, Berlusconi. He was pretty noxious. It is hard to tell. He's <laughs> you know, I'm, I've said this a few times on the show. Like, I really dislike... Slavoj Zizek, but he, I heard him say one good thing, and that was well, about 10 years ago, I think he said, like, Berlusconi is the future of capitalist democracy. Berlusconi yes. is, the, is the template for leaders. And to me, Trump or Nigel Farage or any of these people, it's that template. And that's what we'll see until we have an actual social base working revolutionary yeah. movement again. I, I don't know whether you've had Andrew Kleiman actually on the show or not. I have but, many um, times. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, he's um, extremely hostile to the thesis that uh, I've put forward. He's, I think, put his name to papers that have specifically criticised people like myself as allowing fascism in through the front door. I guess you know, being a left apologism for fascism. Uh, I have a, a great deal of respect for Andrew's uh, writings on political economy. Um, and I th- think it's a shame he became so hostile about, about this issue rather than continuing the, the dialogue. But I, I, I think what this reflects is that the left and the far left are so weak and so socially isolated and detached that in a sense, 
seeing the rise of the far right in a Trump or even in lesser sort of developments actually gives relevance and meaning to the old right-left divide. And if you're on the far left, having a far right is pretty important if there's no social base. Because if there's no social meaning or, or there's a lack of social meaning, there's only the memory of social meaning, then in your current day-to-day political battles, the far right can look important. And I know I've had people get extremely angry with me on the American far left for trying to downplay the significance of the rise of the far right in the United States. And when I look at like the statistical data, when you can look at it and when it's not the Southern Poverty Law Center, which its entire business model is to inflate the threat of the far right at all times in order to get donations. But when you look at like more serious data, actually the far right has had the same problems as the far left. It has become more socially isolated, smaller, weaker. Um, I mean, most of it is stuck you know, to, in the confines of the internet doesn't get out to do do very much in the real world at all. But, you know, you've got this sense of Antifa versus the fascists or the alt-right in the United States as if it's socially significant. And, and politics itself has become so socially detached that the mass media can think this is something significant and play it up and see, this, you know, this moral battle that's going on. But actually, they're pretty socially insignificant. And I think for the vast majority of American voters, they would think, like, what the hell is this all about? It would make no sense to them. They're worried about you know, the economy and healthcare, and they'd, they'd be worried about immigration and national sovereignty, which I think is an important issue that the left hasn't really come to grips with why that is an issue. So I, I think the far left is stuck in that same problem. And, and once you break away from, from that partisan perspective and look at where society is at, actually those battles become much less relevant and there are much bigger things that are going on. And understanding Trump's anti-political appeal is a far more socially relevant thing, I think, than understanding, you know, the alt-right and its latest antics. Not that I'm defending anything the alt-right has done, like they're horrific people, but really, like, the alt- worse than the alt-right has been around before with fewer people complaining about it. But now everyone's complaining about a much smaller problem and you've got to ask, well, why is that? On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and you're now listening to The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.